So today we are wrapping up our series called With. Uh, and the series has been about how we view our relationship with God. And what we've been talking about throughout this series is how the way that we view God has a profound impact on how we live out our faith and how we interact with one another. And this series has been based on a book by pastor and author uh, named Sky Jatani called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And I highly recommend picking up a copy of this book. Uh, Sky's able to go into a lot more detail on each of the postures and each of the topics we've talked about in this series uh, in the book than what I can do in a YouTube video and a message like this. Uh, but the to catch us up as a recap, we've been talking about how there are four default postures of how we relate to God. There's life under God, life over God, life for God, and life from God. And for the first four weeks, we explored those four default postures that we slip into. And then the last two weeks, and today we're talking about a fifth posture. This fifth posture is called life with God, where we start to recognize and we dive into that God desires a relational connection with us. And that in that relational connection that we have with God, we get to experience life with God. Following God isn't about um, getting something from God or trying to extract principles from God, or, and it's not even about what we do for God but it's about being in this relationship with God that we see all throughout Scripture. But one of the things about life with God that we need to recognize sometimes is that it's not something we can just fall into. It takes an intentional choice to connect with God. It takes an intentional choice and action on our part to move out of one of those four default postures that we can fall into without knowing, to move from one of those postures into a posture of being with God. And so today our topic is how this life with God leads us to hope, to having hope for the future, hope in our lives, and hope that sustains us through all things. But I want to take us on a detour before we get there to hope and talk about a different way of how do we get to this life with God? What are some of the, what's something that helps us make a path towards that for us? And really it, this goes back to something that the church has known for thousands of years, that our spiritual fathers and mothers who have lived for centuries before us, going all the way back to the early church, have understood, is there are these things called spiritual practices. They're disciplines, they're things that we do that help us connect with God. And maybe you've heard message series about things like prayer and reading scripture and serving one another and worship and generosity and fellowship and all these practices that help us remain connected as a community of faith um, and help us as a community of faith remain connected with God. And I want to talk about just one of those. And I want to talk about scripture. I want to talk about reading the Bible and how the Bible leads us into life with God and how that leads us towards a deeper hope. But right away, when you hear me talk about this, about spiritual practices, about reading scripture and prayer, our default response is typically one of guilt. We feel like, oh, I don't do that enough, or oh, I, you know, I've really been slipping up. I haven't made that a priority in my life lately. That's something that is common for all of us. But one of the things that's true is that if we want to find God and learn about him in scripture, we need to read the Bible without guilt as our motivator, because guilt is a terrible motivator. 
It is effective on the short term. It's effective to make us make a change in our lives for a brief moment of time, but guilt will never create a lasting, sustaining change in our practices, our habits, our personality. Guilt is a terrible motivator that we need to shed as much as we can. So if guilt is not our motivator, then what is? And sometimes we think, well, it's, I gotta get myself on a plan. I gotta get myself on a checklist that every day I'm gonna read this many minutes or I'm gonna be on this plan and by this date I'm gonna read the whole Bible. And, and I totally agree that I, I would encourage everyone, every follower of Jesus to read the whole Bible at least once in their life, to read the whole thing cover to cover. But if you do that to a checklist or you do that to a timer, all that leads us back to is guilt, and it prevents us from finding God in Scripture when our motivation for reading is guilt or a target or a checkbox or a plan. And so why do we want to read Scripture? Well, one of the things that I've discovered in Scripture is that when we read Scripture well, it's not possible for us to remain in one of the four default postures because we'll keep coming up against stories and teachings and examples of where God is trying to draw people out of these four default postures and into a relationship with him. Now, it's true that Jesus didn't explicitly say, there's four default postures and then there's life with me. But when we read Jesus' teachings, when we read his interactions with people, we can see him drawing people out of their position, out of their starting point, and towards a deeper relationship with him. And we can discover that as we read scripture. But reading the Bible isn't like picking up any other book. In fact, the Bible is such a unique and incredible piece of literature, even from an objective view, even if you take the faith perspective out of it, the Bible itself is an incredible work of literature because it in fact doesn't contain one book, it's 66 books. And these books cover a massive span uh, time period, and these books have a massive range of genres in them. And we understand when you pick up a book today um, that different genres of books we read differently. If you pick up a book of poetry, you read a book of poetry different than you read an instruction manual. You read a fiction novel different than how you read a textbook. We understand that the genre, the way a book is written, shapes how we read it. And so when we read the Bible, we often have to ask ourselves this first question of, well, what genre am I reading? Am I reading a, a book of history? Am I reading a book of poetry? Am I reading a gospel, a, bi a biography of Jesus? Am I reading an epistle, which is really a letter written by one of the apostles, a letter that was written to someone else? It's like we're peeking into someone else's mailbox and reading their correspondence. And each of these genres are vastly different from one another. And sometimes books of the Bible even have multiple genres in the same book. And so when we read scripture, we have to pay attention to this. Because when we read the Bible, we are not reading something that was written with us living in 2021 as the intended audience. Every passage of scripture was written in its own cultural, historical, and social context. And so when we read the Bible, we are getting a peek into how people at that point in time understood their relationship with God, and we can learn from it. Because one of the things we know is that God was active working with the authors of Scripture, revealing himself to them 
as they would write down and preserve for future generations, as they would write so that we could have this resource, this amazing resource of God's word to lead us into a relationship with God. And you might think, well, if every passage of scripture has this cultural, historical, and social context, how do we find that out? And you might even say, well, Brian, you have a degree in this, and you know, if you've listened to our to our services or been part of our church for a while, you've realized I'm kind of a Bible nerd. I like studying this cultural, historical, social context of passages. It's just the way I'm wired. But you don't need a degree to be able to start finding things out about the culture and the history and the social context of Scripture. Sometimes all you need to do is read the introduction that some Bibles will have before each book of the Bible. Or even if you pick up a study Bible, which means it's a Bible that a group of scholars have written extra margins and footnotes and extra bits of information to help give you a fuller picture of what was happening in that moment. This cultural and societal and historical context is more accessible to us now than any other time in history before. It's right there able to influence and shape our reading of Scripture because every reading of Scripture is an interpretive journey. We can't just take a passage of Scripture and pluck it out of the first century and drop it straight into 2021 and say, this is what it means. We have to understand, okay, what did it mean? Who was Jesus speaking to in the moment when he said those words? What was going on? What was the bigger background narrative happening Because as we interpret Scripture, as we take Scripture and we discover the context and we transfer that to today and we start taking on this interpretive journey, we start to see what God is doing in a whole new way. And we start seeing Scripture come alive in how we live our lives today and how we make decisions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so a simple way of doing this is to start with two questions anytime you see a passage of Scripture. Even anytime you're, maybe you're listening to this message or another message or a podcast and someone references Scripture, ask yourself these two questions. What's the genre of this passage of Scripture? And what's the context of this passage of Scripture? And a good Bible teacher will work these in and will explain this and will dive into what this means so that we can be interpreting the scripture without just plucking it out of history into today. And the reason that I am so convinced that this is important is that when we read scripture well, scripture is the primary way that God reveals himself to us and teaches us wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to discern what is right and wrong in contextual situations. Scripture doesn't address the the complexities of life in 2021, but there are principles and understandings and wisdom that we can glean from Scripture as we read it that help us see what we need to do today. In fact, when we look at who Jesus is, when we look at how the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are really the starting point, if you've never read Scripture before, start with the Gospels. Don't start with Genesis. Don't start with the Old Testament. Start with the Gospels. Start with the picture of who Jesus is, because Jesus is the fullest revelation of God that we have. But when we look at the way Jesus interacted with people, when we look at the way that Jesus dealt with the religious systems of the day, 
those of us who are in the church, especially those of us who are leaders in the church, we need to pay attention because Jesus spoke out against oppression. Jesus spoke out against systemizing faith into rules and lists and structures that ended up becoming a barrier between God and people. And we need to be careful, even as us as the church today, that we have not done the same thing inadvertently, that we have not created barriers that keep people in the postures of over, under, for, and from God, but that we are actually teaching the Bible in a way that leads people into a relationship with God. That is the litmus test for if we are reading and understanding Scripture. Is is it leading us to become more loving? Is it leading us into a deeper relationship? Is it drawing us into treasuring God and wanting community with Him? Because if it's doing those things, then Scripture is doing what it's meant to do of us being drawn into God's presence of us learning wisdom and discernment so that we can navigate what it means to live out our faith today. And as we read scripture, we start to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. And what I find so fascinating and amazing about the Bible and what what changed things for me understanding the Bible was when I recognized that the Bible is not just a collection of books. There is a larger narrative that spans from Genesis to Revelation. There's a larger narrative all through Scripture that every piece of Scripture itself found in the Bible fits into that narrative and is part of this bigger story that God is weaving and telling. And when we start seeing that narrative, when we start seeing this bigger picture, we kind of step back and have this moment of saying, oh, this is what God is doing, and this is my place in relationship with God in that narrative. And that narrative can be summarized uh, in many different ways, but the way that makes the most sense to me is that this bigger narrative woven throughout the Bible is God redeeming and rescuing all of his creation from chaos and disorder. And we're going to look actually at the very beginning of the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis 1 just in a second. But this Genesis 1 beginning starts with this picture of chaos and disorder and God creating order out of that. But when we read Genesis 1, uh, a lot gets made out of it. A lot gets put into it that wasn't there in the text. We sometimes look at Genesis 1 and we think, oh, this is a book of history, or oh, this is supposed to be a book of science. But to the ancient Israelites, when their scribes and their priests wrote this down, when they were putting this together so that they would have this in written form for their people, the story of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is the story of their origin, how they understood the beginnings of their relationship with God. And in fact, if we want to get uh, technical and we want to have some fun with this, Genesis 1 up to uh, Genesis 2 verse 3 and Genesis 2 starting at verse 4 to the end of Genesis 3 are actually two separate creation stories that are read in a parallel and overlapping matter, but they don't exactly align. They're two separate stories that overlap and interweave with one another because each story tells us something different about who God is and how they understood the beginnings of their relationship with him. This is not meant to be read as a scientific textbook or a book of history. This is a book of the, this is meant to be read as the beginnings of a relationship. 
And so Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, the first two verses of the Bible begin this way. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That doesn't sound like any textbook I've ever read. But what this middle sentence in these two verses, the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the deep waters. Anytime we see deep waters or deep sea, we actually see an an image and a metaphor in scripture of chaos. We see in the Psalms, when the psalmist is crying out, feeling overwhelmed, they will often use metaphors and imagery of saying, the sea is closing over me. The story of Jonah being swallowed by the whale or the the great fish, uh, to be a little more accurate. He is descending into the depths of the deep sea when the fish grabs him and rescues him. He is descending into the darkness of chaos, fleeing from God as far as he can when God rescues him. This deep sea, meaning chaos, is a metaphor that is used continually through Scripture. God is actually saying at the beginning of Genesis 1, the earth, the world, everything, the universe has no form, and God brings order and unity into the chaos and disorder of the world. And if we jump all the way ahead, we go all the way to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation The last two chapters of Revelation are a vision of the end of the narrative, of a picture of something that has not yet happened. This vision that John gets that he's uh, trying to understand and trying to comprehend and put down in words that can be shared with others, he's grasping and wrestling with language the whole time. He is talking about, at the end, this picture of God being reunited with humanity, That after God's creation, after all the order that God creates out of the chaos of the deep waters, after it gets broken by humanity, the ending vision of all of Scripture is God with his people, of God dwelling with his people with no separation between them, and something that is absent from John's vision of the, the, the renewed heaven and renewed earth is that there is no deep sea. There is no symbol of chaos and disorder anymore. See, God is moving the world. God is moving us as his followers towards a place and a time and a way for us to live in a deeper unity with him. And Sky brings this up in the book. He talks about it this way. He says, but God has not abandoned his world to chaos. The biblical narrative has more to say about the sea and God's power over it. The story of the flood, for example, found in Genesis 6, which is retold in various forms throughout ancient cultures, tells of the world being destroyed by water, destroyed by chaos. But the Lord preserved for himself a remnant through the deluge. Noah and the other passengers on his ark are carried safely through the chaos to dry ground. This is the way that the tumultuous ark and narrative scripture constantly gets presented to us. That God doesn't just provide an escape. He doesn't remove us from the chaos. Instead, when we face the chaotic nature of life, God redeems and restores us back to himself. And in that process, brings order out of the chaos. 
and leads us towards creation as it was designed, as it was meant to be. And we know that we live in a broken creation. We know last week we talked about God's love sustaining us through difficult circumstances and how it does not protect, it does not mean we will never face sorrow and trials and troubles and times of grief, but it means that God is with us and God being with us is that redemption and restoration of creation. And if we jump ahead to the New Testament, we jump ahead to the time period when Jesus comes to the earth and he's with his disciples and he's traveling and teaching Jesus' disciples experienced this firsthand. And I want to read to you from Mark 4. And so this is earlier on in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus is with his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And Mark picks up the story and he tells us this. He says, As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. If you've ever been on a boat in a storm when winds have come up, um, you understand that that is a very good picture of what chaos feels like, of you just trying to get to safety. It says here, high waves were breaking into the boat, began to fill with water. And then Mark tells us this, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? (laughs) Jesus is sleeping amidst the chaos of the storm. And says, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind. He said to the wave, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped. There was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? do you still have no faith? (laughs) Jesus brings order out of the chaos of the storm. And then he turns to his disciples. He says, why are you afraid? He's implying in this, I am here. I am with you. The chaos can't touch you. It's going to happen around you. It's going to make things difficult. But I am here. I think that's what Jesus is saying in this, do you still have no faith? But the disciples, they respond. They say, who is this man? They asked each other. Even the winds and waves obey him. They were terrified of Jesus. They saw firsthand the way that, this example of the way that God is redeeming and restoring, drawing order out of chaos. And their response was terror. Sometimes when we see the bigger narrative of Scripture, we feel insignificant. We feel so small in this bigger story that God's, God's unfolding and weaving, and we think, well, what point could we possibly have in what God is doing? But then we need to remember what we talked about last week, that God does this out of love, that our value to God is not in what we can do. It's not in how hard the disciples rode to try to get to shore to save them. God does this because of his love for us. See, the disciples didn't understand who was in the boat with them when Jesus brought order out of the chaos of the storm. But this was a teaching moment. This was a moment for Jesus to tell his disciples, what you experience, it's not meaningless. It's not going to end you. In fact, 
this would be one of those moments in the disciples' lives that they would look back and reflect on. That they would look back and think, when life gets difficult, Jesus was there in that. Jesus is still with me now. And so you might be wondering, where does all this tie into hope? All this, how do we read the script? How do we read the Bible? How do we see the bigger narrative? Let me let Sky draw us back into where all this connects to hope. He says, hope is the conviction that despite everything we see and experience, everything is not meaningless. There is order amid the chaos. There is a story driving all things to a culmination. Hope is much more than wishful thinking or unfounded optimism. Biblically, hope is understood to be a secure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And Sky quotes Hebrews 6, 19 at the end of that line. When the disciples were looking at the waves, when they were seeing their boat about to break apart and get swamped and filled with water, they needed hope. And hope was right there, sleeping with his head on a cushion. Hope is God's presence with us. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's not unfounded optimism. Hope is an anchor that we can cling to. See, as we discover life with God, and as we learn more about God's bigger narrative revealed in Scripture, we can start to have a deeper sense of hope for this world, that no matter how dark, no matter how disordered, no matter how chaotic our world feels today, the vision that John had of the future is one of God's presence being known to everyone, of us seeing God clearly and living in relationship with him. We can have this bigger picture cosmic hope of what is happening in the world and life with God leads us to hold to that hope that in the bigger picture, God wins in the end. And so life with God offers a different understanding. It's not our circumstances or our behaviors or our radical decisions that give our lives meaning and hope, but our unity with God himself. So when we look at our piece of the narrative, our story as part of this bigger narrative, it's not our circumstances that give meaning. It's not our radical decisions. We don't have to sell everything and move to a distant country to be considered valued and have unity with God. We can have that right here no matter where we are. Now, if God is calling you into something deeper, if God is calling you to a different stage of life, to a different career, to a a different step in how he wants you to be faithful to walking with him, that is different. But we need to tear down this idol that we have created in the church, that certain vocations are more blessed than others, that certain callings are more honorable. That is not true at all. What gives us value what makes God's love, lo- God's love for us so present in our lives is just being with him, that God desires to share his love with everyone, and that is where we find our hope. See, finding our hope, this quote from Sky gets me every time, finding our hope with God rather than in our circumstances mean that if our external circumstances suddenly change, perhaps even tragically, our hope can remain intact. We can endure the storms of life that happen upon us suddenly, knowing that God is always with us. And this is where this message today and last week ties together. 
Because the hope that we have on the scale of our own lives, the hope that we have on our small piece in the bigger narrative of what God is doing, can hold us secure no matter how our circumstances change. We've all, in this last year and a half of this global pandemic, heard people talk about, well, just have hope. But when you see that in the media, when that you know, message of just hope as one word gets shared, what we know as followers of God is that our hope has an anchor. We have hope in God, that steadfast anchor that the author of Hebrews talks about. That book of Hebrews was really a sermon, a message being given to a group of Christians who were considering walking away from their faith. And he draws them back through calling them to recognizing that our hope is in something. Our hope is in God, in what he is doing, in this bigger picture journey that scripture reveals, that we find in our relationship with him. That is what we cling to. This hope isn't found in life over and under or for or from God. This hope is found when we dive into the relationship with God. And so I want to end by giving Sky the last word for today. He puts it this way. Hope does not depend on what's happening around your boat. Hope depends on who is in your boat. Hope depends on who is in your boat with you as we navigate the chaos and the unpredictability of life. That's going to bring our, our series to a close. And my desire in this series has been that, that hopefully this series, that this understanding of a relationship with God would affect all of us the way that it affected me the first time I read this book the way it caused me to rethink my entire relationship with God up till that point. Because when we are with God, when we have this relational connection that God came into the world to reveal and share with us, we get to see what God is doing firsthand in this crazy world we live in. Hope does not depend on what's around your boat. Hope depends on who is in your boat with you. So that brings the series to a close. Uh, remember, next Sunday, we will not be having an online service. On July 11th, we will be back online here on YouTube. And if all goes well, on July 18th, we will be opening back up for in-person services. So I hope you have a great two weeks. We'll see you online on the 11th.